we are going to continue our series that we've been in through the summer uh, on the book of James in the New Testament. So if you have your Bible and want to follow along, we'll be in James chapter 2. Uh, if you don't, that's fine. If you don't have one with you, uh, we'll have the verses on the screen for you. And for those of you online, it'll be on the bottom as well. So we'll be going through that way. Uh, just to get you caught up, because if you were here last week, you know, it was kind of the end of our fiscal year. So we kind of took a break from the series to just talk about what is Lighthouse those kind of things. Uh, so either that or you haven't been tracking with us at all through this whole summer. James is written by, not the disciple James, thank you, um, not the disciple James, but the half-brother of Jesus. Um, as we look at the New Testament, there's a couple James. One was the disciple, one of the original 12 that followed Jesus, and he was martyred pretty early on, died for his faith in Jesus. Uh, but James was Jesus' half-brother. Uh, after Jesus was born, uh, his mother Mary and Joseph had kids together that were not virgin born. They were just normal everyday kids. And so James grew up with Jesus every day and had to deal with all that, whatever that meant, whatever you can imagine growing up with Jesus was like. But one of the things that wasn't part of James' life was faith that his brother was who his brother would claim to be. And that's not really a surprise. I mean, for those of us who have siblings, I want you to think of them, or if you happen to be sitting nearby them, kind of look at them and eyeball them and say, what would it take for that person to convince you that they were God? I have a sister, I don't have a brother, but there's nothing that she could do to convince me that she's God. And I imagine that your siblings are the same way. Maybe if you're an only child, you convince yourself that maybe you're God in the flesh. But other than that, we understand that. So James didn't believe until Jesus died and rose again and appeared to James. And it was like, at that point, James like, okay, now I get it. Now I believe. And James wasn't con content to just believe. James progressed in his faith and did stuff. And eventually, as we find out by the middle of the book of Acts, James becomes a leader in the church at Jerusalem, one of the big voices in terms of the elders and things like that. So that's kind of the transition of James from brother to believer to leader. And if you're familiar at all, if you're not, we'll kind of go through it a little bit with the New Testament or Christian scriptures. It starts out with four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're, we call them the Gospels or just the story of Jesus' life as told by those four men. The following book is the book of Acts written by Luke, the, who wrote the third gospel of just kind of early church history, saying after Jesus left, this is what they did, and just kind of giving you an idea of how Christianity started to spread in the early days. Most of the rest of your New Testament are books written by, we call them books, they're letters for the most part, written by people to either a church at large or in a certain area, to an individual person or to a group of people. And what we're studying, the book of James, is a letter from James to a group of people. They were people who shared his heritage. They were raised in the Jew Jewish religion. They were Jews by birth. And he's trying to walk them through the tension of transitioning from what all that that meant of growing up in the Hebrew religion from birth to now this new, this new way of living, this new thing that Jesus has brought into the world. And he's trying to guide them because he would obviously have felt like, I know, I know how difficult this is to process. And so he's walking them through it. And we've seen through these past few weeks that we've studied, there's a lot that was obviously helpful for them as a first century audience, but there's a lot still for us here in the 21st century to be able to look at it and say, we need to work on those things too. So we're going to pick it up halfway through the second chapter of James. And James starts out with a question. And he says in verse 14, if you're following along, what good is it, 
Dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions, can that kind of faith save anyone? And before we get any farther, I just want to clarify, James is not asking in the sense of what we in the church world might call saving faith. Okay, if that's not a word that makes sense to you, we'll try and parse it out. This is not the, I believe in Jesus as my only hope, that I had a problem, that sin is a problem that I can't handle with myself, I can't deal with. I need help, I need somebody, and Jesus took that and paid it on the cross. That's the essence of the gospel, that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again for us, for our sins. That's the gospel. This is not the faith that James is talking to. He's talking to people that have already done that. That's why he references them as brothers and sisters, part of this new family of believers in Jesus. What he's saying is there's a faith, that thing that you say has changed your life. This placing your faith in Jesus, this being a follower of Jesus, that kind of thing. He's saying if you say you have that faith, but you don't show it by your actions. Can that faith, that kind of faith, save anyone? You're like, well, if, you know, it saved me because I believe right. But he's saying, I'm not talking about you. Can it help anybody else? Is somebody else going to be influenced by your faith that doesn't do anything? Because what good is it really doing? And he'll get to that in a minute. So he starts off with this question, and then he transitions to kind of a visual illustration, a thought experiment, if you would. Uh, if you were ever in school and you had math, and there was always the really easy ones that just this plus this, and then he gets into the story problems. So James is going to give us a story problem, if you would. So we're supposed to think about it, visualize it in your mind, and then come up with an answer. So here it goes. Verse 15, suppose, he says, suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing. So you can imagine what this would be in his context, probably could be as deep as a beggar on the side of the road, or just somebody coming into their congregation, into their meeting, and it's very obvious that they have not eaten well or much, if anything at all. They are, they're not properly dressed for the climate. They're going to get very cold. They, they haven't had anything new in a while. And not just new, but just things that are either ill-fitting or whatever that conjures up in your mind, that idea of seeing somebody that doesn't have enough, doesn't have what they need. He says, I want you to get this in your mind. And then, verse 16, and you say, goodbye, have a good day, stay warm, eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? It's the thoughts and prayers if I can just bring it to what, how we would say it maybe today. Hey, praying for you, hashtag be blessed. I, I can imagine doing this if you're, if you're driving down the road and you see somebody that you know and they're walking and you know they have a car, but they're walking and they, they're not in the proximity where they're just out for exercise. They're, they're obviously trying to get somewhere. And you pull up next to them, you roll down the window and say, hey, car broke down? Yeah, I'm just, I'm out of gas. Maybe they got a gas can or, yeah, I'm trying to walk to go get the part, whatever it might be. It's like, man, I hope that, hope that works out for you. Roll up the window, put it in gear and drive off. Okay, thank you. Thank you. We could have used a ride. This is the idea. James is saying, how, how silly is that? What, what good did that do of just, why did you even stop? Why did you even say anything? Just Keep on walking by. If you're not going to do anything, what good is it to look at somebody that's hungry and say, well, I hope you eat well. 
And then they look back at somebody like me and it's like, well, obviously you're eating well. Do you have enough to share? I'm like, no, that's why I look this way. But this is the kind of idea. James is saying, this is what you're saying. You have this faith that's supposed to do something, but then you're not doing anything. What good does that do? Not just what good did your actions do in the moment. He's talking bigger. He's saying, what good does that kind of faith do? What has it produced in you? And unfortunately, he has a wrap-up, and he's going to give us his estimation of what that kind of faith is worth. Verse 17, he says, So you see, based on what we're thinking about, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. It has no point. It is not useful for you or for anybody else. It's not active. It's just sitting there as a trophy somehow in your soul. It's the good luck charm in your heart that's just sitting there and saying, well, I at least feel better about it. I stopped and told them to have a great day. I feel better. I saw that they were sad and I gave them a tissue and I walked away. I mean, what, a, what good does it really do? And James is saying, the faith that you say you have, this new thing that Jesus is doing, it's supposed to be more than that. It's supposed to be more than just feeling good about yourself. It's supposed to be doing something, producing something that emanates outside of you because of something that happened inside of you. Ultimately, James is just telling us that a faith that does nothing for anyone is really worth nothing to anyone. Because what good has it done for that person that you've come in contact with? They don't care if you're a believer in Jesus or you're just a random person on the street. Because to them, you, whatever you believe has done nothing. It's worth nothing to them. And honestly, what is it worth to us? If our faith is so shallow, if our faith is so empty and dead and useless, James would say, that it's not even doing anything for us. It's not done anything inside of us. It's worth nothing to us or to anybody else. Now, James, being a good communicator, I think he understood that as he was writing this letter, somebody was going to come up with an argument and, and kind of, well, but. And so James didn't wait for them. He didn't say, okay, end letter, send the letter, and I'll wait for their response. He's like, I know what they're going to say, so just keep writing. Here we go. So he says in verse 18, now someone may argue. Some people have faith. Others have good deeds. And I get this. Okay? It's, it's as if some of us were looking at James, if we were sitting with him now or thinking through this and saying, well, James, I understand, but you gotta, I'm just not gifted that way. I'm not, a, not really a people person. I mean, that's not my thing. I'm, I'm good to just leave me in a room. And look, I get this. I'm usually in a little room right now. I get it. If you give me a choice between being with a lot of people and a little, not little people, but a little group of people, I'm going to pick the little group of people. If you give me my choice, I'd probably wind up being alone at home or with family, and that's it. I'm good with that because that's not how I'm wired. But I don't get the argument to then say, well, because of that, I'm just going to believe right and let other people do the things, the good things that need to be done. I'm not off the hook. James is saying, that, that's, not, that's not a good argument. I hear you may say that, that, well, it's just other people will do it or I just don't feel led. You think, that's not, that's not good enough. In fact, he continues a verse that you probably read ahead of me. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? 
And he puts his own reputation on the line and says, I will show you my faith by my good deeds. Saying, James is saying, I'm not, con- I'm not content to just look at it and say, well, only God can judge me. God knows my heart. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. God understands that I have faith and believe. James is saying, exactly. God knows. They don't. What are you doing about it? What, what, is, what is it doing for you? He said, for, as for me, James says, I'm going to show you my faith by what I do. I'm not going to make you guess whether I'm a believer. I'm not going to make you guess whether I follow Jesus. I'm going to just put it right out front in front of everybody so you know what I'm doing, and I'm going to prove it by what I do. Because to James, I think he would say, is faith without works really even faith at all? What do you believe? What is it that you supposedly believe if you're not doing anything about it? Is faith without works really even faith at all? So we're going to continue, and I'm just going to give you a heads up. James gets a little snarky. James gets a little pointed, so we're going to read it if you get mad. It's just James. It was James. Don't yell at me. Yell at James, but he's dead. He doesn't care. So, but I'm just giving you a little bit of advance warning. Verse 19, he says, you say... You have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. I think he had that tone when he was writing or dictating the letters, like, good for you. I had, I had a friend, I told this in the first hour, I had a friend that, uh, I don't know where they got this phrase, but it was their thing, if you did something or you bragged on yourself for something you really shouldn't brag on yourself for, like, good job, you want a bozo button? I have no idea what that even means. What is a bozo button? Maybe it's a thing. I don't know, but that was their thing, like participation trophy, good for you. And I think that's what James is looking at you and saying, okay, you believe in God? Good for you. And he goes a little farther and says, even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. Even the spiritual forces of darkness are looking and saying, yeah, I believe there's a God too. James is congratulating us that we have reached a, if I could put it this way, a demonic level of faith. I mean, we have demonic faith. Good for you. I mean, you believe as much about God as the demons. And the inference is there, what has it done for them other than it scares them? Is that what you want God to be, just somebody you're afraid of? Or do you want it to affect change in your life somehow? He's like, this, I want you to step farther than this in your walk, in your faith. Verse 20, he says, how foolish. How foolish to just settle for that. How foolish to think that that's good enough. Can't you see? Don't you understand? Have I gotten my point across, James says, that faith without good deeds is useless. There's that word again. It, there's just nothing being done with it. And I think God is trying to get us a point through James of saying, I want to use you. I want to do something in this world through you. But the way that you've done this, if you have nothing to show out of your faith other than just your token believing, if it's not doing anything, it's useless to you, it's useless to them, and it's useless to God because he's wanting to accomplish something in this world. And there's nothing being done. So as I said earlier, James was writing to this audience of Jewish believers. So he's going to tap in the next few verses into two stories that they would have been extremely familiar with. Um, You may not have heard them online, but we heard them in the room. 
We have kids over there <laughs> in kids' program, and they have a great curriculum, and there's some of those stories that you want to hit over and over with kids. You want to give them a good foundation of things. So there are stories that if you ask them the certain ones, they will be able to nail. Some of them they won't, but some of the big ones. Obviously, we want to tell them about Jesus. They, they won't, we want them to know Jesus. And some of the Bible stories that we teach them and the lessons that we teach, we want to get down to them. So James is going to do the same thing for his audience of going to some stories from their Jewish history, the things that they would have learned, and saying, you already know these stories, but I'm going to illustrate my point in a way that you won't miss. So I'm going to go through those and try to fill in some of the cracks of the details because maybe not all of us are familiar with all of the Old Testament stories. So we're going to start in verse 21. He says, don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? Pause. That's a big story. We don't have time to get into. That's got a lot of stuff. That's like its own sermon or series of sermons. Let me just suffice it. If you're worried about the wording there, no children were harmed or slaughtered or sacrificed in the making of the story, okay? Everything's fine. They all live. Everything was happy, not ever after because eventually they died, but everything was fine here. But he's referencing a story that they would be very familiar with. Verse 22, he says, you see his, Abraham's faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. And so it happened just as the scriptures say. Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. So what James is tapping into is Abraham's story. Abraham as the father of the nation of Israel, the original patriarch, all of those things. If you look in the book of Genesis and you get to the spot where Abraham shows up on the scene, it kind of starts with Abraham being a, an older gentleman to begin with. And God says, I'm going to do something special with you, Abraham, but it's going to take you doing something. It's going to take you leaving your family and the land you grew up in and everywhere you're comfortable and going to a place that I'm not telling you now, but I will tell you later. And Abraham believed God and said, that's cool. And I'm just going to stay right here. If that was Abraham's story, nothing would have happened. But the story of Abraham is Abraham heard what God said and said, I believe it, and then he did it. And God told him something else, and he did it. And God told him something else, and he did it. And there were times where Abraham didn't believe God, and he did something else, and got in big trouble because of it. Things that are still resonating today. But as a whole, when you look back on Abraham's life, it was a life full of God saying, Abraham, Here's what I'm telling you. I want you to believe me. And Abraham says, yes, I believe you, and I will act on it. In fact, if you wanted to turn back, one book back from where we're at in James, back to the book of Hebrews, the author of the book of Hebrews spends an entire section, we call it chapter 11, talking about faith and giving us handles on what faith really is, what it means, this kind of idea. And Abraham's brought up there. A bunch of other people are brought up. And if you look at that, the theme through that entire thing, starting with before Abraham, but Abraham and story moving on, is a consistent understanding of by faith, because of faith, this person did something, this person chose something, this person went somewhere, or they endured something, that all the time their faith produced something different in their lives because of what they believed. It changed their actions. And that's how... It was proven. That was the way to look back and say, 
We know they have faith, not because Father Abraham sat down one day and wrote a letter to all of his great, 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 great grandkids that would one day read it and say, this is, this is a letter from your Father Abraham that says, I believe God, so should you. So why should I even believe Father Abraham? I don't know. His life showed it by what he did. And James says, so you see, verse 24, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. He's saying this is how you show it off. Yes, it's between you and God, but if you want other people to understand it, it's got to do something different. It, sometimes it has to show you, do I really believe? Am I, am I sure? Am I sure I believe what I say I believe? Well, you're, the things you do is what is the evidence for yourself and for other people. Then James goes into a story that I would not have picked, okay? It's just one of those things, I, I would not have gone to this one because it kind of starts out weird and you're like, that one? So verse 25, he says, Rahab the prostitute's another example. Like, okay, point, counterpoint, you know, Abraham, father of the nation, Rahab the prostitute. Maybe this is not the direction we want to go, but James has something specific in mind. And we're going to read the verse and then I'll tell you the story to make it make sense, hopefully if I do my job right. She was shown to be right with God by her actions, always by her actions, when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. If you are not familiar with the story of Rahab, let me give you the Cliff's Notes version for sake of time. The nation of Israel had come out of slavery in Egypt and was making their way after years and years back to where their ancestors had lived where Abraham had moved to, where he had lived and died, where Isaac lived and died, where Jacob had lived until he came to Egypt with Joseph. It's been years, centuries. And they're making their way back, and they've had some battles along the way, and they're getting into this new, this promised land, but it wasn't empty and unkept. There were people living there, and there were going to be battles to face and things to do ahead. So Joshua, the time we find in the aptly named book called Joshua, he decides that as they are going into this new land, the biggest, the first obstacle that they're going to come across is a city called Jericho. And being a good military leader, Jer Joshua decides to send a couple of spies into Jericho to kind of get the lay of the land and understand, okay, what are we up against? Because Jericho had big walls. You may have sung about them if you grew up in Sunday school. So this is a big city and a big thing that they have to face. So these spies go out and they go into the city probably trying to disguise themselves, keep it as hidden as possible. And as it would go, maybe they chose it for a reason, they find themselves in the home or the business of Rahab the prostitute. I can guess that they probably were going there because who talks about what happens there? It should be a quiet moment. But as it would happen, that's not how it goes. And word gets to the king, the leader of the city of Jericho, that there are spies and that they're specifically at Rahab's house. So he sends word, probably armed guards' word, to say, I've heard that you have spies here. Send them out because these are our enemies and you're not harboring enemies and this is your chance to be okay. Rahab has a choice. The logical, normal thing you would think would be to say, yep, those two. <laughs> and now you're in better standing and you're not in danger. But Rahab doesn't do that. She instead tells these people that have come to say, you know what? You just missed him. 
I bet you if you go that way, you'll catch them before they get there. So they leave, they chase after these imaginary things, but she's hidden them. Why would she do this? To paraphrase what Rahab says to these spies at the, at the time, she goes to them and says, let me just tell you what's going on. We know who you are. We know where you've come from, and we've heard the stories. You see, we have our gods that we've worshipped. But your God's different. Something's happening that we can't explain. You had stronger people than you come after you, and you defeated them. And the only explanation is your God. In so much that the entire city, all of us are worried what's going to happen next, and we're afraid. And many of us are going to stand in opposition because we don't know what else to do because we're afraid. But I believe your God is strong and powerful, and he is the God to follow. So because of that, I'm making the choice to follow your God, and that's why I hid you. And I'll get you safely back to your people. But I'm asking you to protect me when all this goes down. And if you were here for our Ruth series a few months ago, you know there's much more to the story than I can even get into today. And it has a beautiful ending, the one that you would never expect. But Rahab made the choice when confronted with, this is who God is, this is who the God of Israel was, that she could stand in opposition or she could submit and follow. And she chose to do that. And her actions showed, as James said, that was what showed that she was right with God. And then James is going to wrap it up with one more visual illustration in verse 26. He says, just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. You can picture going to a funeral service. And there's a time of viewing and visitation. And you walk typically to the front and the casket is open. You might walk depending on what the circumstances were. Look at that body and say, wow, they did a good job with the makeup or... I remember when they used to wear that outfit. They, they look really good. It's, it's, they did a good job. But I think all of us as humans understand there's just something that you can see by looking at it. It's just innate to us that it's, it's dead. It doesn't matter how good it looks. It's gone. Nothing's going to happen. You're not standing back waiting for them to jump out. We just understand it's dead. It's over. It's lifeless. It's just the breath is gone. And James is saying, if you want to know, there's something about it, if you just really want to know, that you can look at a faith that isn't active, that isn't doing anything, and that's your giveaway, as much as looking at a body in a casket is, that that faith, it's dead. It doesn't matter what you say, what you think, what you hope, it just is dead if it's not producing anything. a great way to end, isn't it? On a happy note like that. The positive is that James wasn't just trying to take us down depression lane. That's not his goal. His goal is to say, I see something happening that needs to be fixed, and I need to get my point across that something needs to change. All these verses are basically saying to us as we read them, James is asking and saying, has your faith made a difference? if you aren't making a difference for someone else. Really think about it and analyze it. Has your faith made a difference in you? 
if you aren't making a difference for someone else? Is my faith making a difference? Is what I say I believe, is it done anything other than just be words that I utter because it makes me feel good or bad? Has it made a difference inside of me if I'm not then in turn making a difference for someone else? There's a, it's just a practical side of saying, James looked back at all the times that he would hear his brother say things like, follow me. Not very often believe me. Just didn't go, there were a few times he's like, I'm telling you the truth, you better believe me, and, but it was always, trust me, this is going to happen, so you better shape up. But so often he would go to somebody, believing is in there, John 3, 16, I get it. But when he would talk to people, it would be, follow me. Look at what I do and do the same thing with me. This is what it means to follow me. As we talked about last week, if you were here when Jesus did the, see ya, I'm out, kind of last words and then he was gone. It wasn't, hey, keep on, you know, don't stop believing. He wasn't playing the journey song as he, whichever way he went. He was like, hey, I taught you to do things. Go do them. And trust me that I'll be with you while you do them. That was the concept. He's saying, go make a difference in this world. I taught you how to pray. I said, pray, Father, your kingdom come. So be the kingdom. Be the part of the kingdom that comes. Do that. What does it look like for us? Well, if, let me put it this way. If you're not a Jesus follower, if that's not where you are in your faith journey, that's fine. Thank you for being here. You're off the hook and probably... If you have a problem and a concern with Jesus, it's probably on us because we haven't done a good job as the capital C church of doing this very well. So forgive us, please. And I mean that genuinely. But if for those of us who say we're Jesus followers and some of us will hold a book or read a book or speak the book on a Sunday, pray, do all the motions, if we really believe, really, what we think we believe, it should look like something, it should show up in our lives. For instance, if I believe what God says about how I should treat people, if I say I believe that, I should treat people that way. If I believe that I should treat people and love people the way that Jesus loved me, because that was his command, if I say I believe it, it should inform how I treat you. I should be kind. I should be loving. That should be the default. That should be the starting point of all of it, if it isn't, then I don't believe it because it hasn't moved me to do anything. I have a wife. If I believe I should treat her a certain way and I don't, I don't really believe it because I haven't shown it by the things that I do. I have two kids, a son and a daughter. At some point, I say, if I read this, that they are not just my children, they are the children of my heavenly father. They're his more than they're mine. Because they'll leave me one day, jerks. But if I really believe that, it should inform how I parent them. It should inform how I treat them as God's, not just as mine. How is what I say I believe changing? How do we treat our coworkers, our friends, the people that we come across? Could they tell that we believe what we say we believe? Or could they just tell that we're Christians because we treat them like all the Christians do? Where, where do we fall on that?
it was, it was interesting. I, I mentioned I went to, to Florida recently. My family lives down there. And I had, had this moment with my dad. And we don't see eye to eye on everything, and that's fine because he's not perfect. No, neither am I. But we had this moment, and he was, he was teaching in church, and I was in his class. And he looked at me and he said, my son and I don't agree on everything. And I'm like, oh, great. Here it comes because he's got... He's got the microphone. He's, here it comes. And he said, it doesn't matter. Because I love him. And I'm proud of him. And I want what's best for him. And we'll be okay. And I thought, that's it. That's why selfishly, it's easy for me to see God as a father because I got a good one. Okay? And at some point, that's what I want to pass down to my kids. But at some point, if we believe what we say we believe, at some point, we've got to be able to look at somebody and say, it's okay, we'll get there. I love you. At some point, that has to be our default. We've gotten to the point, I think, sometimes in Christianity where we're so concerned about believing right. Do you know the truth, brother? Are you, are, do you, I'm worried about whatever, whatever it is. We're so concerned about being right that somehow we forgot to do right. Because we forgot at some point down the line that the way I treat you should be determined by what I believe, not by, not by what you believe. If you don't believe in Jesus, I hope you do. But that should have no effect on how I treat you. Because my actions should be determined by what I believe, not by what you believe. And I'm going to tell this carefully. I had an instance recently where somebody came across my path, and they are, they are, very, they are very different in their way of living. And I was talking to somebody that was a Jesus follower, a Christian, and basically saying, my concern is how do I treat this person well? And the first reaction when I said what, they, what the thing was, was, I don't even know how you can be around those people. Oh. It's, at some point, didn't God so love the world? We say we believe that, but we forgot. If I could poke a little bit more because I'm already there. If we believe that Jesus is the hope for the world, then why are we so worried about politics? Why are we so worried about our candidate? I have one. I have a king. At some point, if I believe that, it ought to, it ought to do something inside to say, that doesn't matter so much anymore because Jesus first. Do we do what we believe that God wants us to do? Really? Or are we just spending, busy spending our time trying to make sure that we believe what we think we should believe? Because James is looking at us, would look at us today and say, I think you're getting it wrong. You have a version of faith, but it just, it, it's dressed well. The makeup's pretty good, but it's just, don't you think it's dead? Don't you think it just, it needs to be a little bit more living? It's why we talk about Four Cedar Lake. It's the essence of it wrapped up when we say for far too long, the church has been known for what it's against and we want to be known for what we're for. We are Four Cedar Lake. Why? What's the reason for that? Because God is for Cedar Lake. God is for those people. Do we believe that? Do we really believe it? 
Because ultimately, if we really believe what we say, we should do what we say we believe. That's why things like the food pantry are important. It's coming up. You know what that's a chance for us to do? It's a chance to look at somebody and say, instead of, hey, hope you eat well. No, here, come and we'll help. We can't do everything, but we can do something. How can we help? When we have the blood drive in a couple weeks, and Joey and Joey will give us the information about both of these things. This is a chance for us to be there and say, okay, here's a chance for me to do something because I believe that people need help and I believe that God wants us to do something to help. Here's my chance. It's that difficult person in your life that feels just like an obstacle to doing right, doesn't it? Where it's like, this person makes it hard for me to be a Christian. No. Look, I'm horrible at this, but I'm telling you, that's our opportunity to be a Christian. Because it's really easy. It's not hard to be right here. Sing if you know the songs. Sit up straight, pretend you're listening. That's all you gotta do to be a pretty good Christian in church. It ain't hard. It's, it's when people get involved. I'm horrible at this. I told my wife, I, I don't like that I got this one. Because it hit me straight between the eyes. Because I'm telling you, last Sunday there was an example I was doing something, and there it was brought up to an opportunity. Here's your chance. And I'm like, oh, I don't want to do this right now. I'm tired. That's the chance. Do I believe it? Do I really believe what I say? Because ultimately, it's no wonder that the world doesn't believe us. Jesus is not the problem. Jesus is not the reason that people don't believe. For the most part, at least in America, Jesus isn't the problem. It's us. It's no wonder they don't believe him because they look at us and say, you don't believe him either. And if we don't believe enough to do something, they're not going to believe enough to do anything either. But we have a chance. This is not James writing in the first century and saying, it's all hopeless, it's dead, pack it up, close the casket, walk away. This is James saying, you have an opportunity to change the world. And they did. Go back to that book of Acts and read what happened. Look at, put, if you have to, put the Bible down and read history. Things changed because there was a man named Jesus who lived and died and his followers said that he rose again. And they were so changed by that, so transformed by that, that they took up swords and they destroyed the rest of their enemies. No, that came later when we got it wrong. They said, he's our guide. We'll follow him because we believe him. And we're going to do something about it. And it changed the world and it changed history. It can do that again. Are you worried about your family? Follow Jesus. Do what he said. Believe it enough to do it. And give it a shot. Are you unhappy with the state of the world? I think we all are. Whatever side of the aisle you're on, we all agree there are problems. But Jesus is the answer. Let's do something about it. This is hope. This is not discouragement. Unless we want it to be that. Unless we want to just sit back and say, leave me alone. Let me just have my token faith that I hold on to in my heart and don't bother me. Because God is saying, and James is telling us, that kind of faith, it's useless. 
why even have it? Why show up? Do something about it because that's what will do something in our world. Because if we really, really believe what we say, it's time for us to do what we say we believe.